Our scripture reading today is from John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it, because it, is neither, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, 
but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Yvonne. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this privilege we have to be here this morning, to be here safely, and to be here to hear what you have to say to us today. Pray, Father, that you would be with me as we look into your word, and pray that we could say at the end that this was your word and not mine. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, first of all, uh, I would, in a human sense, call this a, a coincidence that uh, last year I was the guy who spoke on the first Sunday of a new year, and I know technically this isn't it, but it kind of is, and here I am again. So uh, I say humanly because, as you know, I was originally scheduled to speak in August, and uh, I had a heart event that has presented some ongoing difficulties, and so here I am today. Um, still here. And uh, anyway, so uh, I've, I've tweaked things, obviously, but uh, if you're wondering why we're jumping back to John 14, that's why, because that's what I was scheduled to speak on back then, and we need to finish John's gospel. But just very quickly, when I spoke uh, a year ago in January, um, I talked about, you know, is this the year that the Lord could return? And uh, we have a few hours yet to go, and... <laughs> We're still here. So uh, I think the answer is no, but that, does that mean it isn't going to happen? I mean, here we are, almost 2,000 years have gone by, and it's fair for people to say, well, you know, is that a real promise? Yes, it is. And one of the things that I touched on, um, and I'm going to touch on a little bit more in detail, is uh, I said that, you know, Jesus gave us certain things to be looking for, and he gave us mileposts. And I mentioned in January completely oblivious to what would unfold over the, the course of the year. Uh, one of the mileposts, I believe, and most theologians believe, was 1948 with the regathering of Israel. And let's just think about what's happened in Israel in the last year. So is that something to be watching and monitoring? I would argue, yes, it is. Um, I also said at the start of the year I was excited because in March I finally qualified for old age security. I was so excited. In July, the government clawed it all back. Um, I was excited that I was in good health. I'm a lot thinner now than I was a year ago. And my health actually got worse. So, so much for dieting. If, if your New Year's resolution is to lose weight, I have a caution for you. Um, but anyway, it's uh, the end of a year, the start of another year, and as Christians, we're always hopeful and optimistic and looking forward to what comes next. And uh, by the way, I want to just say, I'm thrilled to see Matthew and Kenneth here today, two former students of mine in Sunday school. Um, I don't stand here as a preacher. I always say I'm really a Sunday school teacher. So I'm happy to have them here with their friends today. So thank you very much. Um, comfort and warning. Interestingly, last week, uh, Bert shared a message on comfort and here we are talking about it a little bit more again today. So I think God has something he wants us to hear about being comforted. Um, and we have a new year unfolding, and if it's anything like the one that just unfolded, maybe we're going to need a lot of comforting. 
So Jesus, as he prepares to depart from this world, that's really what this passage is about. He's, he's getting ready for the, for the cross. And he desires to comfort his followers. They are about to be traumatized. They're about to go through the most horrific thing they've ever gone through in their life. And they're going to be witnessing his trial and his execution. A horrible, horrific execution. And Jesus knows this. So he leaves them with the words of comfort and a warning that will be remembered when he is gone. And the goal is to keep them hopeful until he returns. With the atrocities we've seen this year in our world, in our day, and the increasing attacks on Christians around the world and Jews around the world, researchers have begun to do polls, and they've stated that currently around 70% of evangelical Christians believe that we are living not just at the end of the year, but we are nearing the end of time. The good news is that this means the Lord's return is imminent. Not something to be afraid of, something to rejoice about. If we think our world is messed up, what kind of a world was Jesus preparing the apostles to go out into? What kind of a world would they aggressively preach the gospel in? Was it easier for them back then? Are there similarities with today's Western cultural shift to secularism? These words of Jesus were to encourage and comfort, but also to prepare them to do the work of the Lord in a hostile culture. Now these words, I believe, have application and comfort for us if we are in these last days before his return. Historian J.W. Shepard writes that the Roman world 2,000 years ago was in a state of unprecedented moral decay. There were 2,000 aristocrats in the city of Rome alone who had control of 1.3 million slaves. That's 650 slaves per aristocrat. I would argue they probably didn't even know all their names. The split between rich and poor was approximately 10% wealthy or middle class. 90% of the population in the Roman Empire lived in poverty. Chastity and marriage were the exceptions, while divorce and sexual immorality ran rampant. Many seductive cults practiced and exerted a degrading moral influence while pagan priests preyed upon the ignorant. The religion of the Romans had no power to address the decay, moral decay of the era. Greek philosophy aided in the downfall of morality throughout the empire. Thousands of lives were sacrificed for entertainment in Roman arenas. Crime ran rampant. Most horrific of all, was the low regard placed on children. Children were looked on with disfavor. And infanticide was widely practiced in the Roman Empire of that time. It went unpunished, and it was a legal means to eliminate an unwanted child. Human historian Tacitus said that the spirit of the time was to corrupt and to be corrupted. So into this corruption, into this morally defunct world marched the early Christians. <clears throat> Who would be accused of turning the world upside down in Acts 17? Now, they were able to do this because they were prepared. 
They were prepared by Jesus and equipped with the Spirit of God to be a counterculture movement that challenged every cultural norm and cultural evil that a pagan secular society had embraced. It is as if they were given the cure for cancer and couldn't wait to tell people how to defeat a killer disease. If we had that secret, would we share it? I hope so. They treated sin as that cancer, and they couldn't stop telling people how to be cured. Jesus delivers five key points in this passage. First of all, he talks about a place in the Father's house. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Dr. David Jeremiah states that the return of Jesus is mentioned eight times more than his first coming. I was actually watching Greg Laurie this week. He says it's five times more. Pick a number. It's a lot, okay? Uh, he leaves to prepare a place for us the same way that a first century bridegroom in Jewish tradition would leave and then come back to get his bride, which is us, the church. The Jews in those days, like us, read inspired and non-inspired works. They would, read, have, they would have read Isaiah 53 about the man of sorrows who would be bruised for our iniquities and how by his stripes we would be healed. A non-inspired work popular at the time was the Book of Enoch, which mentions the second coming and is re referenced by Jude in his epistle. Jude quotes from this book that the Lord will return with power to subdue the world so based on the writings of the day and Old Testament prophecy, it appears the disciples should have known that the Lord was going to die and then return. Yet it is clear, as we read these passages in John's Gospel, that the disciples were unprepared for the Lord's departure from this world. They'd spent years in close company with Jesus, yet they lacked insight and understanding of what was happening due to their preconceived prejudices and beliefs. Jesus says they will receive comfort by placing their trust in him. He had never failed them, had never stopped providing for them, and that this was going to continue. In this day, we also obtain tremendous peace and comfort by trusting Jesus Christ. He always provides for his followers. J.C. Ryle, the famous bishop from Liverpool um, in England, once wrote, Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the only sure medicine for a troubled heart. Jesus is the cure, and he is to be trusted. Jesus also sought to comfort them with the promise of an eternal home. Now, this is a message to encourage the disciples who were going out into this hostile world that no matter what, what they faced or we face, we have a promise that gives us hope. Hebrews 11 calls this place a better country. Fundamentally, our desire to go to heaven is really a desire to return to fellowship with God. He is our creator. We return to our sinless state and we live with him and worship him forever. We long to be in that country. We're homesick in this world. Heaven is a place prepared for a prepared people. It is being prepared for a bride to be with her groom. The second thing Jesus talks about is there's only one way for salvation, a very unpopular topic today. He says, 
I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He doesn't say, I'm one of the ways. I might be the way. Perhaps I am the way. He says, no, no. I am the way. Jesus now tells how we will get to this better country and who gets to go there. Thomas asks, but what is the way? Jesus is proclaiming that there is only one way to heaven, and he is it. The early believers were called the people of the way. So what is the way that Thomas and many others failed to understand? It is the one, only, and narrow way for believers to follow in Jesus' steps. He's not a spirit guide. He's not leading us in a pursuit of truth or happiness. No, Jesus is the one true way who takes us to our destination, which is a better country. As the way he is the mediator between man and God, he is our advocate who pleads our case before God daily. He is our defender who protects us from Satan, the one who accuses each and every one of us every day before God. Jesus is also the good shepherd who leads us in the way of truth in a world that frankly has no truth and is in, is in total confusion in all areas of truth. This world has rejected absolute truth and as the book of Romans states has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We live in a culture that denies God created humans male and female. In fact many deny God created anything at all or that he even exists. We live in a world that denies the sanctity of life and kills the innocent. We are in a spiritual war, and one of the first casualties in any war is the erosion of truth. Jesus himself would soon be asked, well, what is truth? Pilate asked him that question. Well, Jesus is the truth. He is eternal, holy, and pure, and came to give us life. His truth cuts through darkness. His truth counters lies. His truth bypasses opinions. It ignores emotions. It exposes biblical error. He came to give us life through truth. And this truth is important because this truth, his truth, the truth, will set us free. Many, though, reject this truth. The truth of God is exchanged for the deception by the God of this age, the prince of the air, the devil. The Bible is clear that it seems easier for humanity to believe the man of sin than to follow the way of truth. The truth Jesus speaks of is revealed by the Spirit of God and cannot be discovered any other way. Truth is from God, and heaven is our destination, and only Jesus Christ can take us there. The third thing Jesus claims is his deity. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus can make promises and fulfill them because he is God. Jesus can empower the apostles with the ability to perform miracles because he is God. Jesus can promise to overcome death because he is God. Jesus can prepare a place for us in eternity because he is God. Jesus is the one who can save because he is God. This passage is one of the times in the life of Jesus he clearly states and claims to be God. One of the core attacks on Jesus Christ by many 
is this very fact, the deity of Jesus Christ, the claims he made about himself. I was once asked, how can we know error when interacting with smooth and defeatful, deceitful, defeated, deceitful heretics, cults, and others? And my response was a very simple one. Ask questions about Jesus. How do these people define him? Who is he to them? We need to know the answer to Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, when Jesus himself says, who do you say that I am? It's an important question. Earlier in John 10, we read that the Jewish leadership took up stones to kill Jesus because there wasn't any misunderstanding in their minds with them in who Jesus said he was. They said, you, a mere man, claim to be God. But how can we know for sure that Jesus is God? Anyone can say it. How do we know he is? Jesus says it's simple. Believe the evidence. How can a mere man heal the sick? How can a mere man give life to a dead person? How can a mere man heal the lame, give sight to the blind? How can a mere man cure leprosy? How can a mere man forgive sins? How can a mere man accept worship? How can a mere man be the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end? How can a mere man defeat death? How can a mere man coexist with God from the beginning and by his words, all things were created? So if we examine the evidence, the evidence says Jesus is God. The fourth thing, we will be comforted. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. Jesus gives us a promise. He says, if we ask anything in his name, it will be given to those who love him. He goes on to say that those who love the Lord keep his commandments. Jesus promises to hear and answer our prayers if we are faithful. A real gift of prayer is the asking and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit to work in our lives, we show the love of Jesus through obedience to him and his commandments. To ask for anything in the name of Jesus was a new teaching from Jesus, and it appears the apostles and the disciples, they struggled with it. Asking in the name of Jesus was as if Jesus himself was doing the asking. It is like taking on the image of Jesus Christ ourselves and his righteousness, and we go before the Father and we ask for anything in his name. So how do we love the way Jesus asks, and how do we obey his commandments? The way is tough. It's hard. Well, frankly, it's impossible if we try to manage it by ourselves. But Jesus now gives us a solution to the problem a big part of the cure. Jesus says, we will receive another comforter. We are being introduced to the Trinity, and the third person of that Trinity is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is developing a clear view of the order which we interact with God. The Son receives the Spirit from the Father. The Son sends the Spirit to believers, which brings believers back into contact with the Father, enabling us to address him as Abba, Father. Verse 17 calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. Jesus specifically names the Holy Spirit 
as the spirit of truth because he is distinguishing this spirit from any other spirit, a spirit of error, a spirit of lies, a spirit of false prophets, the spirit of antichrist. The spirit of truth today is recognizable as that spirit contrasts error. The spirit of truth comes, causes us to feel comfort, uncomfortable. It protects us. It's telling us that something isn't quite right. When we encounter a situation we shouldn't be in, the spirit warns us. The spirit guides us, comforts us, teaches us, and protects us. The spirit of God can do this because that spirit lives within us and is true. In the Old Testament, we read and read that David prayed after his great sin with Bathsheba, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me, Psalm 51. Well, here is some really good news. We as Christians, even though King David was a mighty man in the Old Testament, we will never need to make a prayer like that. Why, you ask? Why would we pray like that? Well, because once we embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit does not dwell upon us. He dwells in us. Can we quench the power, the work of the Spirit to work within us due to unconfessed sin in our lives? Sure we can. But he will never leave us or stop protecting us from the enemy. Can we know for sure we are saved and have the Spirit of God within us? Yes. How can we know? Paul explains in his letter to Titus, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. If we desire to live righteous and godly lives, lives, we are proving to the world the indwelling of the Spirit exists within us. We contrast our lifestyle with that of the world around us. Jesus is teaching something that's all new for the apostles. Jesus is about to be betrayed. Jesus is leaving. The Spirit is coming. They were struggling to grasp what is going on. Jesus previously had called them little children, and now they think they are about to become orphans. So to counter their concern, Jesus said he would not leave them comfortless. The coming Spirit would comfort them by providing fellowship with the Father through the Son. Jesus then confirms that a day is coming when they will know with full certainty that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. They will realize he is God on that day, and that day that is coming was the resurrection. The resurrection for Christians can never be undervalued in its source as the furnace room, the power source of Christianity. These questioning apostles huddled in the upper room would go on to fearlessly build the foundation of the church. The apostles would give us the vast writing we have today that tells clearly who Jesus is, how the church started, why we need a local church, why we should even go to it how to run a local church, who should and should not run it, the mission of the church in spreading the gospel to a lost world, and finally, how we should prepare for eternity 
and the end of the church age. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, but it was these apostles he was encouraging who would go on to build the foundation. Before that day of the resurrection arrives, they are reminded that they will show that they love Jesus by keeping his commandments. They would show the world they follow him because of their lifestyle. We love him because he first loved us and he died for us, so we keep his commandments. The Ephesians were told that this love is so vast, so deep, and so thorough that it passes all human understanding. It is beyond our ability to grasp, so all we can do in response is humble ourselves before God, let him love us, and be obedient to his word. The final thing, and I'll wrap up, is we can overcome evil. When it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you now, for the prince of this world is coming. Jesus has been speaking primarily about the resurrection, but he now gives us he now gives us insight to the real enemy behind the cross, the devil. Here he issues a warning. The devil is being given a power, a period of power that brings about the death of Christ, and he's at work in the world today. There's been a tremendous amount of confusion over passages such as these, so let me, from my dispensational perspective, <laughs> add a bit of clarity. The question of who killed Jesus, often asked by biblical illiterates and bigots, has caused a tremendous amount of hardship and evil in the world, specifically, primarily, against Jews for almost 2,000 years. <clears throat> so I need to begin by making a very aggressive point. And we need to, as Christians, be clear on this. Man's sin... The sin of humanity, your sin, my sin, put Jesus Christ on the cross. The devil may have been pulling all the right strings to get the Romans to participate in what the Jewish leadership fundamentally demanded, but ultimately the need for the cross was set in Genesis when Adam sinned. Humanity put Jesus on that cross, and God allowed Satan a period of freedom to commit this atrocity. What is now occurring is the end of the conversation between Jesus and the apostles. After this night, the apostles would know the risen Savior. Before that event is manifested, the next stage of history would be dominated by Satan. In Luke, Jesus said to the priests and the soldiers who came to arrest him that, this is your hour. The power of the unseen world controlled by Lucifer was now executing its plan. It had taken control of Numerous people, men, even Peter, would stumble, and he would even deny that he knew Jesus. That same evil power is at work in our day in opposing the gospel work. According to several organizations, 6,000 Christians lost their lives in 2022. 2,000 church buildings were destroyed, and 125,000 Christians had to move because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is warning us here about who is really behind those attacks. It isn't another cultural group or another religion. It's the devil. However, like the apostles, we can be comforted. We can be encouraged and look to the future with hope because a day is coming when every eye shall see him and every knee will bow. Job 
was suffering. He was suffering because God allowed the devil to attack him. Evil was attacking him, yet he could say with certainty, I know my Redeemer lives, and in the end will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me to see him. The Lord's message of comfort and the promise of the Holy Spirit is now to close. He simply says, arise and let us go. In 1979, Bob Dylan, at one time called the prophet of America, became a Christian. And following is a portion of the song he wrote in response to those who mocked and hated him for the change in his direction, the change in his music his newfound faith. I was one of those. I was one of those who mocked him. I made fun of him. I thought he had lost his mind. I thought he was faking it because it was a popular trend for artists and musicians to claim to become Christians. I stopped buying his music. I stopped listening to his music. I was very vocal in my opposition of what Bob Dylan had done. So he wrote a song. This is what he wrote in response to criticism from people like me. He said, I believe in you. They ask me how I feel and if my love is real. And how I know I'll make it through. And they, they look at me and frown. They'd like to drive me from this town. They don't want me around. Because I believe in you. He concludes with, a thousand miles from home but I don't ever feel alone because I believe in you. Does any of what I said this morning bring questions to your mind? Are you feeling comforted? Are you feeling concerned? Are you unsettled about the direction of the world we are in? Do you wonder how the Spirit of God can reside in you and not just be around you? How can we be like Job and someday see God face to face? Well, I would argue we complicate things, but Paul wrote in Romans a very simple answer to those questions if you're struggling with what I've said here today. Paul wrote, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time we've had here today, we thank you for your word that blesses us and comforts us. We thank you for your word that prepares us for a world to come. We look forward to this better country, and we thank you, Father, for preparing it, and we ask that you would encourage us as we leave here today. We pray for each person here today, if they have any questions, to please speak with us, we'd be pleased to answer. So we ask your blessing now in Jesus' name, amen.